there's a famous saying that you are the average of five people that you hang out with. So if you don't have five people, have five books. Hi, I'm Nils Vinya, and you're listening to the B2B Leadership Podcast, a show dedicated to demystifying leadership development one conversation at a time. Each week, I sit down with leaders in the B2B space to discuss their journey and what they've learned along the way. This podcast is brought to you by the B2B Leaders Academy. The cost of not consistently developing your leadership skills is enormous, and the B2B Leaders Academy features monthly leadership training and live coaching. Being a great leader isn't hard, you just need a guide and the right set of tools. So head on over to b2bleadersacademy.com to join and become the leader you have always wanted to be. Hello and welcome to another episode of the B2B Leadership Podcast. My name is Nils Finya and today my guest is Shoeb Mogul. Shoeb, welcome to the show. Hi Nils, thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Excited to have you on talking all things leadership. But first, would you share with me and our audience the role that you're in today and the company that you work for? Sure. I am the director of engineering at a company called Newstore. Newstore's vision is to bring joy back to the shopping experience. Newstore is the only integrated platform offering omni-channel solutions for stores and consumers to deliver amazing shopping experiences everywhere. All right. So bring joy back to the customer experience. Tell me a little bit more about what what joy have we been missing? Let me ask that. Exactly. As you know, uh, retail has been there since since humanity existed, right? Retail won't go away. But the way retail has been done has constantly been changing. We have moved from exchanging stones, bricks to exchanging cards. Now we're into cryptocurrencies. But the way retail has evolved in the last few decades is not at the level where the customer accepts. The customer accepts the same experience that they get, or at least even better experience than what they get online, where they can buy it online, they can sell it online. They don't care if it is not there in your fulfillment center or not. They don't care if you accept cash, credit, whatever, like whatever the customer needs to pay you for, they will pay you using it. They don't care if you cannot deliver or not. You have to deliver it, right? So uh, the idea is a customer can go into any store of the retailer and they can buy it even if it is not there in that store. The associate can help them either deliver it, put it in a pre-order, use clienteling to give them discounts if they are a loyal customer. So the idea is we are connecting all their stores and their warehouses and giving them one sort of endless aisle which connects with a mobile POS along with client telling and they get this complete experience so that they just believe that or they just experience a seamless way of, of shopping with that with that brand or that retailer. Okay, that's really interesting because oftentimes, you know, I've certainly gone into a store and they feel very much like individual silos, right? You say, hey, do you have this in this size or do you have this part or whatever the item is? And the associate will say something like, no, but let me check the inventory at our other stores. So then they go on their computer, they come back a few minutes later, say, I don't have it here, but I have an item in stock somewhere else. 
I'm curious about the difference between that experience where they say, oh, we can order it and have it shipped to you and that's fine. And what's the difference between kind of that, which I think a lot of stores probably are set up like this now, and this endless aisle? Like how different is that experience from a consumer point of view in just those couple scenarios I was describing? The associate now doesn't have to run to a fixed hardware where they can search it. They just have it on their iPhone. In fact, the consumers also have it in their in their app where they can go in a store and they can just quickly look it up and they can buy it directly from there and it gets delivered. The idea of Endless Isle is even if you're buying it online, it is still connected to your stores. So let's say you're buying it from Boston and there is a retail store in Boston and your warehouse is somewhere maybe in China, right? But if you want it in two hours, we can make it happen because we will ship to you from the store. So that is what we call an endless aisle. Wow. Interesting. Okay, cool. I look forward to that kind of an experience uh, in the future, powered by you and new store. And that's Absolutely exciting because it is a little bit frustrating today when you know this stuff exists in some other place or it's just not connected and just not as easy as it should be. And I love the term endless aisle. It makes me feel like you can't, there's nothing you can't get <laughs> within relatively easy and you don't, doesn't always require an associate, right? Sometimes you could do that by yourself, perhaps if they enabled it for the individual. Yep. We have had some of our retailers during the pandemic, they were able to to sell the inventory from their closed stores because they had an integration that was enabled by, by new store. So those are the kind of things. And we would like to call us pandemic proof as well, because like things like touchless payments, endless aisle, those are just there. And that is what also like, you know, drives us where we are building something that is pandemic proof that has helped our retailers uh, to be in business despite the store closures, because they were the most hit at that point. Right. Yeah. Right. As soon as, yeah, as soon as the physical store went away, all sales in that store went away until you guys were enabled it to, to actually sell inventory through the store without ever being open. That's really cool. Wonderful. Okay, awesome. So fantastic stuff that you and New Store are doing. Now let's shift gears and would love to hear about how you got into your first leadership position. I think I bumped into it. It wasn't a deliberate choice that I really wanted to be a manager. I didn't even have a formal education in it. Back in 2012, 13, I along with uh, some of my friends, we started this company. I was a co-founder of it. It's called Maverick. It started gaining traction at that point. We uh, we raised a bunch of rounds. We started hiring people and someone had to take some leadership responsibilities there. The CEO cannot do everything or my other partner who was involved in operations as well. So at that point, we had uh, 12 to 15 engineers that is how I basically leaped into the leadership role. <laughs> and you're not alone by saying that it was kind of an accident getting into it. There have been a lot of guests on this podcast at varying levels from, you know, director, VP, even C-level that didn't initially plan out to get there. So now you find yourself inside your co-founder of this company. There's, you're growing, have a team of 12 to 15 engineers, and there is a responsibility that is needed to oversee and lead and this group of engineers. So having no background in this and having not done it before, how did you navigate that situation kind of being thrust into that in this company environment? Yep. I mean, it was hard 
I think the only thing that let me offload there was I had supporting co-founders and we had a terrific mission. We wanted to bring micro-influencers in the limelight. We we wanted brands to really leverage micro-influencers. So I got a lot of help from my co-founders and also from, from the mission, which really helped us drive it. But I'd like to say that I wasn't successful being a manager at that point. I wasn't able to empower the teams. I was just focusing on the functionality. I wasn't able to to talk about the why as effectively and as repetitively as I really wanted to. At that point, I was pretty much lost. In fact, that is why I decided that I really want to be good at this. I have learned engineering. I have done that. Now I can build technology at scale, but I'm really bad at people management and I really need to. Even if I go into lead into management or not, if I want to grow and if I want to survive startups, I love startups. I don't think so. I'll ever go away from the, the startup world. So I really needed to be good at leadership. And that is why I, I decided to constantly keep on learning and grow in it. Good. And so the supporting co-founders and that, you know, speaks volumes to having a supportive network, whether that's your co-founders, whether that's colleagues, whether it's people inside or outside your organization, which is wonderful. And the mission was so strong. Tell me a little bit more about like the role the mission played. Like this was something that you aligned with very deeply. Obviously you were the co-founder of the company or one of the co-founders, but you know, how important was that mission during the depths of when you're like, I don't know what I'm doing here and this is really hard. What role did the mission actually play in getting you through those times? The mission essentially was the North Star that we had, right? Like this is what we want to accomplish and this is what we are selling. The one thing that I was okay was really understanding the business what exactly are we selling? So I was pretty close to our, our sales co-founder as well. And I mean, we are a startup, right? So whatever customer we are getting, we little bit drive to be sales driven. So what what I think we were doing effectively at that point was constantly experimenting and constantly delivering one feature after the other. I mean, our SLAs initially were so bad. When, when I was the only engineer, we were like 80% uptime or something. That, <laughs> right? But then pre-optimization is the root of all evil, right? So we focused on getting the right things out, even if it means that we are, it is barely able to run. That is what an MVP is. And yeah, I think we, we were really good at, at, at discovering what that MVP was. We didn't even know the concept of what continuous discovery was at that point, but we constantly iterated. The number of times I had rewritten something just to get one part of it out is just mind-boggling. And in fact, some of the engineers that, that joined us later on and in fact, one of the head of engineering that we had joined, uh, the feedback was he couldn't believe the amount of things that we built in such a short time. But the idea was also not to focus on output. It was always focused on outcome. At some point, we were super hacky. But of course, like uh, security was was something that we never compromised. But things like, you know, building quick reports, quick analysis tools, quick SaaS applications, using the existing APIs and stuff like that. So I think if I would measure the lead time, we had an incredible lead time at, at the very beginning. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So I'm curious for your take on this and which way you feel it goes. Great leaders are born or great leaders are made? What do you think? I think great leaders are made. 
I think it is an acquired quality. You constantly keep on learning. You constantly keep on growing. There's a famous saying that you are the average of five people that you hang out with. So if you don't have five people, have five books, I believe, and constantly keep on changing those books so that you keep on learning. So as long as you keep on learning, of course, like when you're a visionary, you have a vision and how you execute that also matters and all of that comes together. There were companies like Uber before Uber, there were electronic vehicles before Tesla, but the execution and who is doing it matters. But I firmly believe that it's not something that you have come from birthright, from your birth, but it is definitely that you constantly keep on learning and growing. Yeah, I, I agree 100% with you. Just, you know, the notion that it's been around for a long time and some people might believe it like, oh, they're just naturally a great leader. Like me, no. And we were fed this stuff in, you know, early primary school and high school and college and, you know, in our professional jobs and things. And it's just been common terminology, I guess, that's been out there for a while. And I agree with you 100%. Like it's not, this stuff is not things as evidenced by, you know, at this point, 50 five plus recordings of this podcast with leaders of all different walks of life, all different backgrounds, all different industries, all different levels, all different types of companies. There isn't a single born leader who just came into the mix and knew how to do everything perfectly. Everybody struggled through it, right? And I take your point, you know, very seriously about it is about you making a decision to become a better leader. And that is what is at the core and what's most important for you, for your growth, for your development, for your team, et cetera. That's exactly why I created the B2B Leaders Academy was for those people who wanted to make an investment in themselves to become a better leader. I wanted to provide a place where I could share my expertise and help them become better leaders, period, because it just doesn't come naturally. And sometimes the things are fairly straightforward and really easy tools to implement. And when you implement them, guess what? You get great results. That's amazing. So I'm with you 100%. We'll get back to the interview in just a minute. This episode is brought to you by the B2B Leaders Academy. The cost of not consistently developing your leadership skills is enormous. The B2B Leaders Academy features monthly leadership training and live coaching. Being a great leader isn't hard. You just need a guide and the right set of tools. Head on over to b2bleadersacademy.com to join and become the leader you've always wanted to be. Now let's get back to the interview. I'm curious next for, you know, some of the learnings that came from that early team at Maverick and specifically with regards to you know, how you viewed the team, the engineers, right? You were an engineer, you did all the work initially. Now, all of a sudden, you're responsible for the team doing the work. How did you kind of mentally look at the team there? And what have you learned now where you see things differently from the people that report into you today? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So initially, when we started hiring at Maverick, we were we were so busy. We had so much stuff to do. We were like, we just want people who can who can execute for us right we really wanted people who are good at execution but quickly we realized that it doesn't solve a lot of problems maybe it helps you be being productive in some areas but it will still suck a lot of time if we do not have people who are driven 
So uh, we quickly pivoted from that mindset and thankfully we did that earlier than later and we started hiring people who are better than us. Uh, that is, um, uh, that was something that we really embodied. If if I have someone reporting to me who is great, who is who can do things that I cannot, not only I learn from him or her, I'll also grow from from that experience. The one thing that I added later on when I started hiring is to make culture an integral part of of hiring. So every person that I hire. We, we do not have uh, recruiters who who filter down resumes for us because filtering down resumes takes maybe like, you know, for me, it takes less than like, you know, a seconds to, to whether this person is a potential or not just by looking at the resumes. Resumes are just advertisements, right? Like all the resumes, if you look at it at some point, like it is very hard to differentiate. But regardless, I go through the resumes. I contact them myself. And I talk to all the engineers that we are hiring or all the managers and everyone. So, and for me, it is important because what I've added right now is, is the culture part of it. Our culture at New Store is about being the best problem solvers. We focus on problem solving, whatever the problem is. And if you want to hire someone to solve the problem, you solve it. If you want to buy a software to solve a problem, you buy it. If you want to write code, you do it. If you want to delete code, you do it. But ultimately, you are responsible for solving the problems. So that is that is the very basic culture that we have. As long as I see that, I see those kind of people who are passionate enough to solve problems in a team setting, you are the right culture fit. The other thing that that I have also made an integral part of my hiring is is focusing on diversity. IT, as you know, is full of brown and white men. It is difficult to hire uh, someone out of out of these ethnicities. But if we do not make a conscious effort in, into going in that direction, we we are setting ourselves to failure in that level. So these are the two things that I've added um, after my experience with, with Maverick. Yeah, that's great. On the diversity point, can you share anything perhaps that has worked well for you from a sourcing perspective or even just on the diversity side? Like, have you found other channels or other backgrounds or just particular areas where you found candidates who might be open to this kind of work that wouldn't traditionally fall into the pool? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I found a couple of things, right, when we really looked hard into diversity is the job descriptions that we had. The way we had put our job descriptions, they were so, I mean, they were focused on, how do I put it? They did not appeal to to the diverse community. They they had like, you know, a lot of experience point, like, you know, a list of technologies and you only get experience with those technologies if you were part of this, this IT community from an early stage, right? If someone is doing some code academy or some coding schools, it will be hard for them to be good at these seven technologies, right? So that was something that wasn't appealing. And even a CEO, what he did was he pointed out to our job description. And the interesting thing that he mentioned was we essentially work with brands. We work with fashion brands and still getting like, you know, diversity because everyone loves fashion, right? This is not like, you know, uh, some, some sort of banking system or some 
pretty like you know deep tech stack where we can get only some part of the community in it it is a promising field for all the all the kind of ethnicities to be a part of and we are still not getting that so some of some of those were the relevations that uh, that helped us to to really make our job descriptions easy enough for people to uh, to apply that helped a little bit the other thing that we are also doing is we are focusing on ability to solve problems if you have the ability to solve the problem but if you really do not know let's say one language but you know some other language right as long as we see that you're passionate you have the ability to solve problems we still go ahead with the interview process i think the mindset here is also important the way we are hiring we don't focus on increasing the diversity to make us look diverse we are focusing on diversity to make new store better so it's not like we are doing any sort of favor by hiring someone from dif- from different ethnicities we are doing it to improve new store so they are doing a favor on us by by choosing new store so that is the mindset change that that we have brought in that's a big mindset shift that you know i think something that everybody can look at is the JD. It all starts there. Your company might champion diversity. It might, you know, talk about it at length with, you know, internally part of teams and all this stuff. But if the simple job description, which is the advertisement for the role, isn't targeting a diverse audience, then you kind of, you know, all that talk is for nothing. And I, I think that's a really great point that just, it can be as simple as that, that take an honest look at your job description and see, what are you really telegraphing and putting out there that you want? Is it the same cookie cutter stuff that everybody else in the company is has or you know could have? Or is it really targeted towards the core key elements, the problem solving, the you know, cultural backgrounds, whatever it is, that make different perspectives and bring that to the table? And I think that's incredibly powerful. The other clarification I wanted to reinforce was just that this wasn't for the point of making you guys diverse, but for making new store better. And and that mindset shift, you know, diversity and DE and I, I guess talked about all the time, but sometimes like why doesn't get talked about as much, right? And it is, it's not about a favor. It's about making your organization better. And I think that you guys have taken great strides and, and I just love how you phrase that. So I wanted to call that out. Thank you. Going through the hiring piece and looking for these things. So you cleaned up the JD, changed it up. You got it so that it was appealing to as, you know, a, a different audience than you were before. And you personally contact every engineer and connect with them. Then you have decided if you're going to have a conversation, all that good stuff. This element of problem solving and assessing problem solving. I know in an engineering context, you can assess whether or not somebody solves a problem by giving them an engineering problem. But I'm curious if there are other ways you've gone about assessing the skill of problem solving that maybe aren't, you know, traditional, just here's a coding example, how can you solve this problem? What other ways are you able to assess this? Because not every problem they're going to encounter is going to be code-based, right? Sometimes there's people problems and sometimes there's org problems, sometimes there's customer problems. So how do you assess that beyond just the engineering problem? Or is it even necessary because if you can solve this type of problem, you could effectively Mm -hmm. solve any problem? Yep, yep. When we hire coding or, yeah, coding is definitely a part of it, but the way they code and the way we have set up our coding and architectural interviews 
do not just focus on solving a particular piece of code that is there. Otherwise, we could have just done it online, right? Just go to Codabyte or uh, something like that. But then what we do is we send them the question uh, way beforehand so that they can look at it. And we don't want them to be stuck in front of us. We want them to to rather discuss it with the with the engineers and and solve it. So we focus on how how the person behaves when they are not only when they are stuck but when they are solving something how inclusive they are when they are doing that do they talk to the engineers do they brainstorm with the engineers and how comfortable they are right the thing is we are not really looking for 10x developers we are trying to build 10x teams so even if you are a little bit rough in in coding we have all the rail guards like we do CICD, we have testing, we have code coverage, uh, we have code linters that will keep on yelling at you if technically you go wrong somewhere, right? So we are not looking for like, you know, 10x developer. Uh, we are just looking for someone who is passionate enough to sit with us and solve the problem together. Hmm. Interesting. Love it. And it's it's fascinating when you bring that all the way forward, right? It's not just about the hard skills they have. It's not just about the soft skills they have. It's about the, the one, the problem solving, but also the collaboration and the communication and how well they're going to integrate with the team. So I think it's great you expose them to that in the interview process as a way to find out, are they really going to be a good fit here? That's wonderful. Okay. So Shoaib, last question here. Let's say that you could go back in time, knowing everything you know today, all the experiences you've had, all the progression that you've had in your leadership career, in your engineering career, everything. And you could sit down with your younger self when you and the other co-founders you know, were inside of Maverick and this team was blowing up to 12 to 15 engineers. And at that point in time, when you were going to step into that leadership role, you could share some advice with your younger self based on everything you know today. What advice would you share? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I think the first thing would be to show more empathy, be in their shoes and really understand what they are going through. For instance, the analogy I, I try to give is, I mean, I come from India, right? And from just where I grew up and the kind of work that I had before, the why aspect was usually missing. So let's say if someone asked me to build a table and gave me the dimensions I just used to build the table, no question asked, just the dimensions, and I'm, I'm, I'm good. But the difference from that to moving here was now people will ask me questions about why do you want to build the table, what it is being used for, right? They want to know the motivation behind it, and I wasn't able to provide that. So that is something that I think I, I should have done more, where being more empathetic towards people around me and really being in their shoes and try to coach them if you think that they're not there yet and even learn from them. One of the things was maybe internally I was uncomfortable sharing my Legos where basically I was the only engineer for a very long period of time and I was building all of these things and maybe internally I was feeling insecure about sharing those. I still have mixed feelings about it because I was like, I can't wait for someone to come and take this. And at the same time, I'm like, oh man, someone is going to take this from me. (laughs) Right? So your mind plays funny tricks there, right? So that is one thing. And what was the other thing? Focusing more on why rather than the how. 
so me and my other co-founders i mean we still have a great bonding we we have a good relation and we trust each other a lot and because we talk to each other so much i think the thing was repeated so many times to me everything that we were doing it just used to get embedded in my in my head and i never felt the need to ask more questions because we were always discussing and talking about it so when i was communicating that downwards i wasn't communicating it multiple times i don't think so it is ever one and done you constantly need to communicate you need to repeat you need to repeat till people get disgusted by by you on like you know how many times are you going to say the same thing in fact we do the same thing here as well my boss my current boss he's great to work with he he always tells me that how are you communicating right you cannot be that chicken who just goes there hijacks the agenda lays your eggs and just leaves right so you have to be involved like you know you you have to have your skin in the game you have to keep on repeating things to your team so if if i had to go back i would have done that where i'm constantly repeating things and mostly the why not the how i don't know when the okrs had started but maybe i don't know if we had okrs we had uh, management by objectives at that point something around that predecessor yeah <laughs> maybe i could have adopted something like that where we really like you know used objectives to drive it to really empower the engineers and 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 make sure that they are there and we believed them that they solved the problem we still believed them but i was i don't think so i was empowering them enough uh, because of like, all the things powerful lessons incredible yeah. advice <laughs> well shoaib thank you so much for spending some time with me today talking about your experience going all the way from you know first time founder you know, getting thrust into a leadership position, all the learnings along the way and all the great things that you and your team at New Store are doing today. So thanks so much for sharing your expertise, your advice, your wisdom. And I can't wait to see all the wonderful things that you and the team are doing. And I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Neil. It was great talking to you. Bye. Thank you for listening to the B2B Leadership Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd welcome you to subscribe and give the show a five-star review. You can see the show notes and all of the resources mentioned in today's episode at b2bleadershippodcast.com. As always, I'm Nils Vinya, and I hope you'll join us again next week. Take care and have a great rest of your day. This podcast is brought to you by the B2B Leaders Academy. The cost of not consistently developing your leadership skills is enormous. And the B2B Leaders Academy features monthly leadership training and live coaching. Being a great leader isn't hard. You just need a guide and the right set of tools. So head on over to b2bleadersacademy.com to join and become the leader you have always wanted to be.